Hello, and welcome to LifeCast, a podcast presented by Publishers Weekly. LifeCast is a series of conversations with authors of nonfiction books for today's lifestyles. I'm Marcia Nelson, Reviews Editor for Publishers Weekly. I am talking today with Doug Fine, the author of Hemp Bound, published by Chelsea Green, which is the sponsor of today's podcast. Doug Fine is a journalist who lives on a ranch in New Mexico with kid goats and kids who are human, and uh, we'll hear more about that later, I think. But in the meantime, let us talk about hemp and welcome, Doug. Thank you very much, Marsha. This is an honor. So, what's hemp and why should we care? (laughs) Great place to start. Hemp is one of humanity's longest utilized plants. Uh, It was recently found actually on very well-preserved clothing in a grave in Anatolia section of Turkey by a Stanford-led team. Um, I wear hemp almost all the time, much of it homemade. I put the uh, a nutritive superfood, the omega superfood of hemp oil in my morning shake for the whole family every morning here on, as you pointed out, the uh, funky butte goat ranch here. And I probably should say right off the bat that hemp is generally defined, uh, it's used all over the world industrial and it's coming back now into the U.S. Nice timing for <laughs> after two research, two years researching a book about it. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I should say it's usually defined as 0.3% THC or less, meaning the almost none of the psychoactive component of the rest of the cannabis plant, because it is a cousin of the cannabis plant. It is a cousin. Okay, okay. You make it sound like a miracle plant, but obviously, if it's this good, there's a catch. So let's talk about the catch. Uh, Let's say more about the relationship between, what do you want to call it, industrial hemp? And give us the vocabulary. Sure. And Marsha, I have to say, there isn't really much of a catch other than Due to really a a, a sort of a typo, it was lumped in with the psychoactive cannabis, the kind of cannabis that's used in social cannabis or or medicinal cannabis. It it has no psychoactive effects at all. And the rest of the world realizes this. Canada has a a 15-year-old modern industry that's going to pass a billion dollars uh, this year, and they've had in that those 15 years zero cases of confusion mm-hmm. between psychoactive cannabis and, and hemp. Uh, one reason is the two varieties can't be grown within even a bunch of miles of one another because mm-hmm. the pollen from hemp plant would ruin a psychoactive cannabis plant. Mm-hmm. So there really isn't much much downside other than the bureaucratic sort of inertia of getting it uh, back into into the economy and into the soil, and as and, you know, and as for the uh, the issue of it sounding like a miracle crop, you know, it does. As a seasoned journalist, you know, mm-hmm. two decades experience, I have to be careful about coming back from the field and the processors, you know, from uh, researching this from from Belgium to Hawaii, and find and sounding like your roommate with the lava lamp. It sounds less miraculous when you think of it in terms of Michael Pollan's way of describing the plant, which is something we've co-evolved with. The, the, the amazing qualities that the plant has on the industrial side are there because we've bred it that way. And among them, we've already talked about the nutritive superfood. Among them are foot-long tap roots that grew, grow very quickly and are great for uh, what they call phytoremediation, soil healing and uh, erosion control. But there's also real-world applications in the digital age for the, for the fibers that include a construction material, hemp fiber mixed with lime, creates a carbon-negative building and insulation material that has a higher R value or insulating material than pink insulation. The fibers, again, as your roommate with the lava lamp said, they are stronger than steel. This is all stuff I researched here in the 
in in the last few years. And today, there's a, a company that is providing. I visited their factory and held the fiber, providing hemp fiber uh, that goes into Mercedes and BMW door panels. Nothing political about it, just performance. So let me get this straight now. So you can eat it, you can wear it, you can build with it, and apparently you can also drive it. <laughs> you, you sound really excited about it. So let's go back a little. What brought you to write about it to begin with? Oh, that's a great question. And I should say, um, since you're listing those applications and since we're speaking here sort of author to, to Publishers Journal, um, that uh, there's also an application for it in terms of hemp paper. At a recent event I did uh, in, in Denver, somebody came to the event and gave me, at the beginning of the event, uh, a book to hold, and I kept it up on the podium during during the talk, that was published in 1735. It was a family heirloom in Dutch describing the Dutch Reformation, printed on hemp paper. It looked like it was printed yesterday. Um, it's because it's acid-free paper naturally, and it just holds up, holds up, in fact, better than tree-free paper. So for those of us not moving to e-readers, and that's why we called the book Hemp Bound, by the way, is because I, working with the terrific folks at, at Chelsea Green, are working towards a day when we're, we're going to create a, a, a seemingly analog digital age revolution in publishing. That is tree-free publishing. But let's go back to the question that, yeah. that I, uh, what brought you to write about it, Doug? My previous book was called Too High to Fail, and it was an examination of a model by which uh, the other kind of cannabis, uh, psychoactive cannabis, can come above ground in a way that's sustainable, locavore, benefits to farmers and communities, and, he and healthy to families. I'm, I'm a father and a sustainability journalist. The book before that was called Farewell My Subaru, which is about the way I still live today, basically driving on vegetable oil, solar-powered uh, ranch, and outsmarted by the goats that give me my uh, milk and yogurt and ice cream each morning and evening. So um, th this is my life, this is my politics, this is my philosophy, and this is my journalism. So sustainability is what it's really all about. And while I was researching Too High to Fail, I noted that the locavore farmers that I was following in California's Emerald Triangle were trying to centralize their flower trimming facilities for reasons of uh, quality control mainly. Um, but they had this plan whereby the the cellulose, the unusable stalks um, from their from the har local harvest, would go into what they thought would be ethanol facilities where they could process, some, they could make some local energy um, from the cannabis harvest. That stayed with me, um, given that sort of CV I have, where where it's all about you know making sure there's a livable climate for my kids. So the first thing I, I looked into was whether or not hemp, whose biomass, again, as your roommate with the lava lamp will say, biomass is magnitudes more per acre than what today is used in biofuels, mainly, namely uh, soy and corn. So, okay, g given that biomass, which I researched, and that is true about the biomass per acre, is ethanol the way to go? And I quickly found that it is not the way to go uh, for a lot of reasons. Startup cost for, for ethanol facilities is one of them. But there is a biomass a waste biomass energy mode, a technique that's being used to, to, to uh, get communities in Germany and Austria energy independent today, and the U.S. Army is, in fact, buying these units. It's called gasification, with one S, and um, it's a high-heat anaerobic combustion process by which any uh, farm waste can be used to create very carbon-friendly energy, so grid energy as opposed to fuel energy, although, as a side note, Marsha, as you alluded, I did, in the book, take a hemp powered biodiesel ride in a right. limo. But really, the, the big energy app is going to be gasification. And there's actually a decidedly non-liberal uh, uh, utility owner in Kentucky, where uh, one of the states that's leading hemp's revival, 
who's buying up uh, land that's been damaged by tobacco monoculture and uh, and coal mining because hemp does grow on these marginal soils, and he's planning on, on harvesting it to, to, to open a gasification facility in Kentucky. Now, I hear you saying that, th- that this has a lot of potential for us in this country, and, and you can point to um, how it's being used, in, uh, certainly in how it's being farmed and used in Canada and other countries that are ahead of us in terms of exploring its potential. But I also read in your book that it's not the world's easiest crop to grow that it's that it's hard to manage can you can you say something about are there some downsides sure. if you want to start a, a hemp farm it is actually very easy to grow it's just for fiber not uh, easy for always for newbies to harvest there's a little bit of a learning curve uh, that, and that is just on the fiber side again the Canadians only grow it for seed oil they burn their fiber in the field today and so it's the Chinese doing textiles it's the Europeans doing those high-end digital age applications like um, uh, we talked about door panels, but there's also things like body armor, nanotechnology, 3D printing on the horizon for hemp as well. And the Europeans are ahead of the curve on that. What the Canadians are masters of at this point is the seed oil, and that's not rocket science. Any professional farmer is going to be able to harvest the seeds, and the only trick on that is you've got to keep it at a certain moisture level in your storage facilities in, uh, until it goes to, to the processor. But uh, that's, you know, again, farmers, professional farmers can handle that. The issue is is because hemp provides so much biomass per acre that when you are actually cutting down the, the stalks, yeah. they're so tightly, densely packed. It's another reason that industrial cannabis can never be confused with psychoactive cannabis is because it's so dense in the fields. It's these thin stalks as far as the eye can see. And uh, they're, they're, one farmer I interviewed in Canada said, well, the first time he tried to do a farmer, fiber harvest, his harvester caught on fire because it wasn't used to that much volume going through, the, too much friction. And that's really just a question of, of adjustments. There's a, something like, I can't remember if it was a 1927, 1970, some very early international harvester combine that was designed for hemp. It's about relearning the trade, and professionals can do that. That said, even after you successfully harvest the fiber, one has to um, undergo a learning curve if they're going to do those those really technical high-end fiber, the kind of things you need to, to, to put in a jet, pan, jet airplanes panel or, or um, a very soft, soft uh, shirt that can be in a, in a mall's uh, you know, T-shirt uh, shelves, but I'll say this: there is an easy fiber application. We're already understanding here that we're going. We've got relatively easy profits for the farmers from the seed oil, and I'm psyched about that because okay. it's going to lo- lower the price for my own morning shake. Um, but on the fiber end, the construction side, I think, is going to be the first killer app because. It doesn't require a whole lot of um, gentle handling of the fiber. You just basically chop it up, mix it with lime, and send it to Home Depot. And we're going to have, I believe, a construction revolution that's starting in Europe already. Marks and Spencer's just built a huge flagship department store out of yeah. this stuff called Hempcrete. So it's not really just a pipe dream. It's in the real world. Let's uh, steer the conversation in a little bit of a different uh, direction. I'm very curious to know, since you talked to so many people and um, researched across continents, tell us about the research you did. Um, How much did you travel? Um, Did you Skype? How how did you uh, contact everyone to to do this? A lot of physical travel. Um, The most important travel probably was 
early on when I spent, um, I can't remember what, somewhere around a week or more in, in the prairie provinces in Canada, meeting um, everyone from farmers that are really doing it. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a rural guy myself. And so uh, I was really speaking rancher to rancher and getting, getting the lowdown. But also I met with the biggest seed oil processors up there. And that's where I got what you're hearing is sort of my emboldened, confident tone about this. Because these guys, one particular guy, Sean Crew of uh, Hemp Oil Canada, one of the biggest processors in Canada, he he's undergoing something like his fourth expansion in 10 years. Mm-hmm. He's been in it since day one of the modern industry in Canada in 1998. He can't keep up with the demand. The industry's going 20%. He can't wait for American farmers to grow. And I have to say, I'm very appreciative of the Canadians getting the seed oil into my family's morning shake. But what I'd like to see is American farmers start generating their own community-based processing. And again, as I've been giving talks about this, it starts like a pipe dream. I'm saying, come on, guy, investors out there, you know, invest in community-based regional processors that do hemp fiber and energy all at once. But from day one, from the first talk I gave in this in Colorado, now getting on uh, three or so weeks ago, people have been approaching me afterwards saying, hey, I came to this conference, I came to this event as a potential investor who's interested in hemp to learn this. I might, I want to wholesale these gasification units to farmers to, to generate uh, clean American energy and wean us from fossil fuels. What, what's the first step? So this is all really happening at, at, a, at a fast rate. Um, to quickly, to get back to your answer of where, where else I traveled, I looked in, uh, at some monoculture damaged land in Hawaii. Hawaii's okay. mm-hmm. just re-legalized hemp. They're going to get going. And um, another really interesting uh, bit of travel I took was to, in, in the Netherlands, was the Dutch facility of the company called Hemp Flax that's been in it probably the longest on the fiber side and actually got to hold this incredible incredibly strong but yet very soft fiber right off the factory floor that is the is the stuff that goes into the door panels today and it was interesting to to interview their managing director because there is nothing hippie about this guy this is a straight up mba type saying biocomposites and and hemp based fibers are the future not just for 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 door part door panels and cars but for Almost all of our applications in the future, as petroleum especially gets more and more expensive. Um, a quick note, if I could, Marcia, that this year's Farm Bill ended the 77 years of hemp prohibition by allowing university research. But there is a bill going through the Senate now, S-359, that would um, allow full cultivation of hemp. It would remove hemp with that 0.3% THC or less from the Controlled Substances Act that regulates narcotics, uh, which is kind of a no-brainer, and put it in the purview of the USDA and allow farmers to grow it like any other crop. And Colorado's not waiting. I was there on the day they started accepting applications. Their agriculture department is allowing farmers to grow unlimited amounts for commercial use. And to defy the feds like that is really about the money that's to be made, this $300 per acre that the Canadian farmers are making off uh, hemp today. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Doug. Um, Should I grow some in my backyard? Is it good on a small scale if I'm if I'm interested in all of these fabulous benefits and um, and it's legal to do so in my state? And I'm not sure it is yet. I'm actually um, in Illinois. I'm going to do it the moment it's legal in my state in New Mexico. And by the way, Illinois is moving forward. It's not yet um, one of the 14, but that 14 jumped from 11 in the last few weeks. Indiana, uh, Nebraska, Hawaii all just came on board. Tennessee, Kentucky's already on, um, and, and a bunch of other states. So um, it's it's non-controversial. Hemp is, is not controversial, and you'll see it in Illinois very soon. Um because uh, it's a it's a historical actually uh, uh, state. One of the early harvester 
references I was talking about that international harvester I think was found on a farm um, in in Illinois. So um, it's got a great a great climate for hemp, and farmers need the profits there like they like they do everyone else in the so- everywhere else in the soil needs it. So to answer your question about small scale, it's an excellent question, and and I'll first tell you what Sean Crew, that hemp uh, seed mogul in Canada, told me, which is when I asked him that, I said, I have a 41-acre ranch, Sean. Um, so if I planted a checkerboard, 20 or so acres, and he just he just sort of said, talk to the hand. He said, up, 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 up. if you're growing less than a 1,000 acres, uh, we don't even want to talk to you. And I thought that is a real kind of prairie mentality. That's a Manitoba, North Dakota, Nebraska kind of attitude. But do the math on this. The farmer's making $300 per acre, which is 10 times the profits they're making from GMO corn and, and soy these days. $300 per acre at a minimum of a thousand acres, they're profiting a third of a million dollars on a bridge crop. It's not the only thing you can grow on your land in the year. So this is really real money for farmers. We had 30% of Americans at farming when hemp was uh, criminalized and 1% now. And this is something that makes could really put farmers back to land, especially since it's so valuable on marginal land. But I do not agree with Sean that that's the only way to go. Hemp's productivity is so great that on my farm, my own ranch, if I'm only planting a couple of acres of, of seed oil cultivars, as we call the varieties of hemp, uh, on, on my ranch, that's going to be enough with a press uh, to provide the oil for my family. And the remaining seed cake is a fantastic animal feed that uh, in the book I, I did some studies about animals that were fed with hemp seed and how, in the case of uh, laying hens, they actually pass on that higher omega profile into their eggs and provide us healthier eggs than corn-fed chicken. So my goats can't wait to get it. My chickens and ducks can't, can't wait to get it. So I would say yes, even on a few acres. And then there's a middle ground, too. If farmers really do implement this community-based processor uh, model that I'm advocating in the book, you could have one farmer contributing 10 acres, another 40, another 50, and then pretty soon you're above that 1,000 acres that, that Sean uh, was talking about um, for the huge industrial level. And I personally, if that happens here in New Mexico and the Southwest, Arizona, Colorado, I will put my consumer dollars toward regional locavore, low-carbon mile, hemp seed oil, and textiles for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I think you can do it in your own yard, and you can do it on the relatively small commercial scale as well, well sort of a... Uh, you know, what do they call that? Like a craft uh, industry, a boutique industry. Okay. Okay. Um, Doug, I'm, I have a bunch more questions for you, but we don't have a bunch more time. So I, much as I'd like to hear about your goats, <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what I think perhaps um, is more important to, to ask is, what are you working on now? Um, obviously, you're, you're touring in support of the book, which is, is newly out. Are you going to get this excited about your next book? or <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> I love that question, Marsha. Thank you. And yes, I'll, t- I'll keep these answers tight so we can get to everything. Um, I... Um, I only write about what fires me up. Um, I can only write about what fires me up. When, yeah. I, when I when I do that, it, the books write the, I, they're done. They're done before I even know it. Um, they write themselves. And um, so you're right that I'm very focused still on hemp right now since it just came. The book just came out, and I'm touring a lot. I'm headed to to Ohio this week, then PL up Washington, and it, it it seems to never end. And I'm psyched about that. Um, that that said, on the horizon, um, the next nonfiction book that um, I want to write about has to do with uh, possible possibilities of sort of privacy and personal uh, independence in the surveillance era is what I want to look into for my next nonfiction book. And I'm also writing a book, uh, uh, a novel about a, uh, about a fellow who undergoes a, a traumatic brain injury and it kind of gives him some uh, magical powers. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Well, um, 
a couple of things to look forward to. And I, Doug, our time's over, but um, really appreciative of you sharing this information and your boundless enthusiasm. <laughs> Thank you so very much, Doug Fine, for, for taking time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Coming from a, from your from your literary uh, angle, it was great questions. I appreciate it, Marcia. Great, great. Uh, Doug Fine's book, Hemp Bound, is published by Chelsea Green, which is the sponsor of today's LifeCast. I'm Marcia Nelson from Publishers Weekly. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.